O oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, from the bow, Selah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. Those are verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 60, which along with Psalm 59 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, July the 21st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Joshua today in the ninth chapter, verses 3 to 21, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 69 to 75, and in Paul's letter to the church at Rome, chapter 15, the first 13 verses there. So, um, I want to say one thing at the outset. Um, If you look up Martin Lloyd-Jones... Um, or the MLLJ Trust, I think it is, then you will find the finest set of teachings on the book of Romans you will ever see anywhere. They're long, but they're fantastic. He wrote a 12-volume commentary on Romans that, that is just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, he, he taught at a church in, he pastored a church in um, London for many, many years. He was a Welshman and uh, one of the finest biblical teachers and scholars that you'll ever hear in your life. And so I would highly recommend Martin Lloyd-Jones and go to the, M- I think it's MLLJ Trust. Um, and there's a you, you can listen to everything there for free, and I highly recommend it. So here we go in Joshua. So remember what's happened. They had just conquered AE uh, after having been routed by the people of Ai first because one person, Achan, had taken devoted things, things that were supposed to be destroyed, and then took them uh, and kept them. And so that was why they lost the first time around. And then a new strategy comes up after they consecrate themselves by putting away those devoted things, and they conquer Ai. So now when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. And the Israelites are not supposed to make a covenant with any of the inhabitants of the land. So they're saying, We come from a different country, a distant country, not part of this land, and we're asking for you to make a covenant with us. They said to Joshua, we are your no, but the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Be, "Perhaps you live among us. Then how can we make a covenant with you?" They said to Joshua, "We are your servants." And Joshua said to them, "Who are you, and where do you come from?" They said to him, "From a very distant country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord your God, for we had heard a report of him, and that all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og the king of Bashan, who lived at Ashtaroth." So our elders and the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come, now make a covenant with us. Here's our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But now, behold, it's dry and crumbly. 
These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. You know, it's interesting, this this part, this last part, the garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. The, the Israelites, remember, were 40 years in the wilderness, and they said that their garments and their sandals had not worn out during that time because God had provided, and, and he had done everything necessary that those things that they couldn't get would last for that duration. So anyway, so the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. They didn't pray. They just made a decision. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Shephira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. Now some of those end up playing a role in, uh, in the future. The Gibeonites, Saul, went after them and killed um, several of them at one point in time. And David, when he became king, went to the Gibeonites and apologized because they hadn't kept covenant with these men. The covenant that Joshua made, David still honored and respected. Saul broke the covenant by killing some of these men. And so David has to go and apologize and ask them, what can I do to fix the problem? And so the Gibeonites asked for seven of Saul's children, and that could mean grandchildren or whatever, and and David said okay. He felt like that was not an unfair request because of the breach of this covenant that was to be a perpetual covenant between the Israelites and the Gibeonites. It's an amazing thing to see David do that. The other weird thing is is that the ark spends about 20 years in Kiriath-Jerim. Because when it got captured by the Philistines and taken during Saul's administration, it got taken uh, from them, and then the Philistines sent it away from Ashdod because the, their god fell, <laughs> and, and the ark, essentially the presence of the living God, defeated their god, and so they wanted it out of there, and so they moved it out, and it ends up spending 20 years in Kiriath-Jerim in exile in the same kind of way that David spent much time in exile during the kingship of Saul. So the Gibeonites and Kiriath-Jerim in these cities continue to play a part in Israel's history for a very long time because of this covenant right here. But the people of Israel didn't attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. Well, rightly so in this particular instance, because they failed to inquire of the Lord concerning these people. Could God have told them who they were and where they came from? Absolutely. Did they bother to even ask? No. Churches do this all the time. Well, at least the one I pastored did. <laughs> um, but, but sometimes we fail to discern the will of God through prayer. We fail to come together and say, Lord, what would you have us do here? Show us the truth in this matter, because we think we know the truth. But, but we don't. It's difficult to navigate each day. I talked to a friend of mine this week at the gym. We were talking about this and that, that we need to be prayed up all the time. We need to ask God, what am I seeing here? Tell me the truth. Show me what's going on and help me to understand and navigate through this. <clears throat> all the leaders then said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. We've already done a dumb thing, but that dumb thing we swore by the name of the Lord. 
not to do this. This is the reason David has to go back later and say, what can I do to restore the covenant relationship we have with you? Why did he want to restore that? Well, because it's a covenant taken in the name of the Lord. And it's saying something about the Lord if you break that covenant. He says, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leader said to them, let them live. So they become cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. So they, they, they decided, well, you know, mistaken or not, we made this covenant. And therefore, we're going to honor that covenant. We're going to honor it in our own way. We're going we're gonna to force them to do basic labor for us. But they, they honored the covenant because it was undertaken in the name of the Lord. And so they had sworn by his name not to, do, not to put these people to death. Now in the gospel, so remember Jesus has been arrested and is being put on trial, and we've got Peter following at a distance. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, so he's moved further away, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And so what, what they're saying is, you're a Galilean. We, we hear your accent, and we know where you're from. You're not from Jerusalem. You're not from this area. You're from up there, where he's from. You sound like him. We know who you are. You've got to be one of them. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. So he swore on an oath, invoked a curse upon himself to say, if, if this is true, then this should happen to me. And to swear, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, Peter had taken an oath, right? I mean, he had said that even if everybody else abandons you, I'm not gonna, and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll persevere to the end. And no, that oath that Peter took on his word, Jesus had told him, you'll deny me before the rooster crows this night. It's not going to be very long, Peter. It'll be before tomorrow morning. You won't keep the oath that you just made. And so the the restoration of Peter is what we see at the end of John's gospel when he meets him on the shore and, and walks with Peter. And as they walk, he continues to ask Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me more than these? And so that, that threefold renunciation that he makes here this night he has to make a threefold repetition of his commitment to Jesus in order to be restored back into that relationship and then to be given leadership over the people. It's clear that he did. He's given leadership among the disciples and, and over people when he says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. So it's, it's important, as Jesus says, that we keep our word that we keep our oath. Don't swear by all these things. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't swear oaths because it's unnecessary if you're the right kind of person. If you're a person who keeps your word, then that's the important thing, and you are the image of the living God. So when you swear, you're swearing by that. So when you take an oath, when you, when you make a vow, then that's what you're doing. 
you're doing it on him because you are the image of the living God. You're created in his image. So it's important that we be the kind of people that God is. And if we're the kind of people we were created to be, the people who keep their promises, then it's not a problem. We shouldn't have to swear. And that's why Mennonites, Amish, um, Quakers, uh, they, they don't give testimony in court because they don't take oaths. So it's important that we be the kind of people who just simply keep our word, that we are the kind of people that who reflect in their integrity the God whose image we bear. And that's exactly what was going on with the people in uh, at the, with the Gibeonites, is, is that they had sworn the oath, and now they were bound by the oath that they swore. But as children of the living God, then we should be in our character, in our integrity, we should be like him. In other words, our words should be our bond. In the this passage from Romans today, Paul's continuing to speak about this, this issue of eating meat. And, and I, I wish I could go back. I mean, I could, but I'm not going to. And, and redo a little bit of what's going on before. The word meat that he talks about there in, in Romans 14 that we talked about is a specific word, and it's only used a couple of times in the whole New Testament, and it, it specifically refers to food that's been sacrificed to idols. So that it, it doesn't get translated that way. But there were about 400 pagan temples in Rome at the time, and so most of the meat sold in Rome had probably been offered to some, quote, God that that then becomes a problem. It's a problem in two ways. It's a problem for Jewish people to eat this meat because they considered it defiled because it came from a, a non-Jewish source. Therefore, the assumption would be that it, that it was not okay to eat. And then the other problem would be for the Romans who had come out of those pagan religions into this. Previously, they had an attachment, and they saw this the sacrificing of food to idols as an important thing. It was an important part of their worship to eat this stuff because it had magical properties at some level. Um, and, and so when they came out of paganism and into Christianity, they brought that understanding with them. So their conscience could be um, weak in the sense of they had previously believed this meant something to sacrifice this food to an idol. And so coming into Christianity, they, they brought that fear with them that, wait a minute, if I do this, am I going back to the worship of that other God? And am I taking paganism into myself? Am I allowing this, this God uh, some sort of entrance into my body. And, and as I said, th- there's, there's a sense of that in certain parts of Christianity that, w- that we need to avoid these. And we should avoid, to, to the extent possible, that, that things that are worshipful or whatever. And so people will feel that way even about yoga, because some of the postures apparently are postures of worship. Well, th- I, I see that in much the same way. That it's that if I'm not doing it as an act of worship, if I'm doing it simply for the exercise and the mobility and the flexibility, then I'm certainly not going to worry about whether that posture is or not, because nobody's ever told me which of those postures is. So I'd have to go actually research that and figure that out. So I, I think it's important that we we do these things, that we that we work through these issues. So it's not just meat. It's not just the distinction between vegetarians and, and meat eaters or carnivores. It, no, that's not the issue at all. 
But what Paul's saying is, is that it is that this is for some people, it's a big deal. It's not just, like I said, it's not just about carnivore versus vegetarian. It, it's more than that. It, it's something that, that the way it could defile the weaker brother or put a stumbling block before that weaker brother is, is that they don't, um, they haven't gotten over that pagan belief, and they haven't been able to say that thing that I used to worship really is nothing at all. And so anything sacrificed to it is, is actually nothing at all either. It's just sort of, you know, some trickery or magic. So he says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. And, and what Paul's saying is, is that this is an act of love to do this. While you may know that these things are absolutely nothing at all, and it's meaningless, and it's it's very secondary. For some people, it hasn't been able to become secondary because of their connection with it or because prohibitions that had been uh, taught by the traditions of the elders, for instance. Well, the, the scriptures themselves don't say to avoid this stuff, but the teachings of the elders would have, would have convinced them that anything that was not Jewish was tainted and defiled, and therefore you ought to stay away from it. Well, it's difficult to do that, when you live in Rome, when you live in Corinth, when you live in these other places where many gods are being worshipped, it's a very different atmosphere than living in Jerusalem, where everything you can count on is kosher. So that's what he's saying. So he's giving instructions to people in these places that have been sort of overwhelmed by pagan worship to say, okay, we've, we've got to be careful then about this. And, and it's got to be an act of love that you're going to deny yourself these pleasures, he says. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ didn't please himself, but as it's written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. I mean, Jesus could have pleaded complete innocence of all charges, but the reality is that he took on our sin. That, that's how much he loved us, that he didn't count equality with God as something to be grasped. And he came down, took on the form of a man, and, and then in the form of a servant, and then goes to the crucifixion, the only innocent man who ever actually lived. And so he says Jesus didn't please himself, and, and that was the point, is that he loved us enough to come here and be not only defiled by contact with, contact with us, but also to, to purify us and also to take on the reproach. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. So whatever was written in former days is to instruct us through the encouragement, through endurance and encouragement of the Scriptures we may have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God." Paul's point here about how to live in unity is more than just agreement on theological principles and concepts. What he's saying is, is that, that sometimes you have the knowledge that, that this is okay, that this stuff is not unclean, but your brother doesn't. And what you do in eating that food that's been sacrificed to idols may cause him to stumble and go back to that. And so he has not settled in his own mind that that idol is nothing, really, certainly not in comparison with the living God. That Then when you do that, then, then you're telling—he's not understanding your liberty is the best way to say that, because he doesn't have that liberty in his own conscience. 
and sometimes it requires some time for us to move away from things and then to be able to see them for what they really are because we had a previous attachment to them. And so what Paul's saying is, is that live in unity for this reason, that, that it's important that you glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, so don't argue about these things. Don't argue about them. Don't make them, don't let them rise to the level of primary things by arguing about them constantly. Just suspend your liberty for a period of time in order for this to happen. And that's been the appeal for the last year or two years, really, for people to wear a mask or to get a vaccine or to do this, that, and the other thing. It's been the appeal to the weaker brother. And the problem becomes then then we, we're denying certain parts of our humanity if we do this. And so so what do we do and how do we do this? But that's been the appeal for a long time. We'll do it for the immunocompromised or whatever, in spite of the fact that, well, we won't get into all that. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. So he's a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. In other words, that covenant. He's affirming the covenant with the Jews to be irrevocable, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it's written, therefore I'll praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it's written, rejoice, O Gentiles, with its people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So Paul says there's a dual reason Jesus came. He came to confirm the covenant with the Jews, and then because of their rejection of him to open the door through God's mercy to the Gentiles, to come into that same covenant, which again is an irrevocable covenant. And now it's sealed with the blood of Christ. And so once it's sealed, then the covenant is done. It is sure as his blood. It's sure as the quality and the character of God and his integrity. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.